Hey, this is Scott. Thanks for checking out the podcast of Grace Fellowship Church. Hope it's encouraging for you and helps you take your next steps in your faith journey. Enjoy. We're uh, in week two of a series called Relationship Killers, and we're talking about characteristics and traits that we have that might really make a relationship go sour. As I talk with people, I find that some of our biggest pains that we go through are not circumstantial, but they're relationships that fall apart, that dissolve things that go bad, that go wrong. It's the careless word, the selfish action, betrayals. It's that inability to communicate in a healthy kind of way. And these sorts of things have ripple, a ripple effect in the rest of our lives. Now, when I say relationship killers, you probably start to think this way. Maybe we think about like that significant other, uh, that fiance, that boyfriend, that girlfriend, that spouse. But I, I want to ask you to broaden your scope just throughout this series because really these are principles and truths that are true in relationships in your family, with your friends, at, at work, in your neighborhood. These things are applicable to all sorts of relationships. And these relationship killers, there are going to be times where they are those huge, poisonous, toxic kind of behaviors. Those things that you're like, I should have known better. Like my mom told me about, right? Those sorts of things that, that are huge. But in reality, isn't it true that many times it's those little things that turn into big things? It's why when we're talking with people and they say, hey, this is what happened and I can't believe they did this thing and they're really bothered and upset by something, you kind of go, wow, I feel for you, but it's really not a, a huge thing. I mean, it's huge to you, but it's not a humongous thing. I mean, they just left the toilet seat up again. You know, it's not a, not a big deal, right? But little things become big things over time. And because those little things become big things, we need to pay attention to even those little things as we exist in relationships with people around us because it's not a matter of if, but it's a matter of when that those things start to grow and start to build into bitternesses and, and more and more problems and challenges that happen. So when those things happen, you know what? It's, it's awful and it's terrible, and in those moments... You might be saying, God, why did this happen? Even if you're not a Christ follower, you might say, God, why did this happen? And you ask him for help. So what I'm just asking and what I'm suggesting is, before we get to that place where everything's falling apart and we're asking for God for help in this area, that we would start now by saying, I want to align my life with the kind of traits and principles that will keep those things from ever going sour in the first place, that we would be proactive about seeking God's wisdom as he reveals it to us in his word. We're eventually going to go to him for help, so let's start with that now. About 15 years ago, I was leading a choir, 80-some-odd adults. They were kind of twice my age, uh, but I was, it was really fun, and I was pretty good at it. Like, I could wave my hands and do all the patterns and all that kind of stuff. Um, and so as a, a choir director, I would work on notes and are you coming in at the right time, you know, all of those sorts of things. But the other thing that really kind of mattered as a choir is that as people sing, that they engage. Like visually they look, you know, not, not painful. Well, there's this one lady, her name was Connie. And everyone else in this 80-person choir were generally pleasant, and then you would scan, and then you would get to Connie, and she looked like she was an act, at an actuarial conference. I mean, she looked like death warmed over. She was just like a sour-faced. And like I did with so many other people, I would say, hey, uh, hey, everyone, welcome. This is so good. Don't forget to smile, Ted. And Ted would smile, and we would sing, and we would do our thing. Well, in this one particular time, I said to Connie, hey, Connie, smile. 
And she, she kind of gave like a half-hearted one, and then she didn't smile anymore after that. Evidently, me asking Connie to smile was largely offensive to her. And I found out about it after the fact that she was very offended. And, and even my supervisor came to me and said, hey, I heard that Connie's really upset. And I said, what is she upset about? Well, she was upset, I guess, that you asked her to smile. I said, but I asked her to smile? Like, that's my job. Like, that's what I'm supposed to do. And so as I heard that she was offended, I got offended that she was offended. Doesn't she know that it's my job to direct this choir? Doesn't she know that I have a bachelor degree in music, that I am highly trained? I graduated with honors. Why would she attest my authority that way? And I started getting offended that she was offended. I was grateful for my supervisor. He was very wise. He kind of walked it through with me, and, and after time, looking back at this, because Connie had left the choir because I asked her to smile, <laughs> and after a while, I looked back, and, and my supervisor said this, said, Scott, you may have succeeded in being right, but you failed to be loving. Congratulations, you were right, but you failed to be loving. And God used that to get to my heart in a way in that moment to say, you know what, there's maybe many things going on there, but Avi, your pride, your pride got in the way of what you should have done in that moment. And that I was partly to blame because of an unyielding and proud heart. This weekend we're talking about pride. We're talking about pride. There are two types of pride. There's the pride that's the satisfaction of a job well done. You look at what you've done and you said, I feel good about that. There's nothing wrong with that. Solomon, the wisest man that ever lived, he said, it is good to eat, drink, be merry, and take satisfaction in your work. There's nothing wrong with that. But there's a different kind of pride, a pride that we're talking about this weekend, and it's the sin of self-worship. The sin of haughtiness, the haughtiness of spirit that says, I am the most important, my way should be deferred to, my opinion is the best. It's all about me. I think that's why Jesus started out his Sermon on the Mount by saying this, that the entryway into God's kingdom is for those people who would recognize their own spiritual depravity, their own fallenness, their own narrow-mindedness, the fact that they don't see everything, they don't know everything. He would say that the kingdom of God is, is, is opened and available for those people that are poor in spirit, that recognize that it's not all about them, that they don't have it all together. And can I just tell you, that I feel very, very qualified to talk about pride this weekend. Because I look back at my life, and two nights ago I was sitting down talking with Jen, and I was just like cataloging all of those tremendously painful moments in my life where I, I had this relationship that dissolved, and I could trace every single one of them back to some sort of root of pride and an unyielding heart. So I know... I know that I am a proud dude. I'm really good at being proud. And the thing is this, that as soon as I start being proud, trouble comes right after it. 
It's why Solomon said in Proverbs verse, uh, chapter 16, he says this, a really well-known verse. He said, pride comes, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before all. And not like, hey, look at the hotties up in here. Not that kind of haughty, a different kind of haughty, like an, an arrogant haughty, right? Pride comes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. He says, better to be lowly in spirit among the oppressed than to share plunder with the proud. And our pride, our pride is probably one of the most destructive and impactful thing to our relationships. Pride causes us to not be willing to admit when I am wrong. And then we hurt that person who's trying to figure it out with us because they can't trust us when we're not willing to own our own odor, so to speak. Pride causes us to be controlling and domineering and even causes us to be rebellious. Pride causes us to have unreasonable expectation upon others, not leaving room for their humanity, for their fallenness, for their uniqueness, because our standards are the only ones that matter. Pride causes us to perpetuate bad decisions, like the things that we shouldn't do, but I can't tell you that I'm wrong there, so I'm just going to keep doing that thing over and over again. Pride is the cause of abuse and assaults because my desires are more important than yours. Pride keeps us from being vulnerable to other people, and we don't let them in because I can't let them know that I don't have this figured out that I'm hurt and that I'm broken on the inside. I can't let you into that. And so we shut people out. Pride causes a judgmental attitude for those who may be different than you. Andrew Murray wrote a book called Humility. It's not a super long book. You can get it for free online. It's a PDF. And this is what he has to say. He says, consider how all want of love, all indifference to the needs, the feelings, the weaknesses of others, all sharp and hasty judgments and utterances so often excused under the plea of being outright and honest, all manifestations of temper and touchiness and irritation, all feelings of bitterness and estrangement have their root in nothing but pride. And then he says this, he says, there is nothing so natural to man, nothing so insidious and hidden from our sight, nothing so difficult and dangerous as pride. There's nothing so insidious, so hidden from our sight, nothing so difficult, nothing so dangerous, because pride, here's what pride does. Pride creates massive blind spots in our lives. And it becomes this huge feedback loop. Because I'm proud, I'm not willing to admit that I have a blind spot, that I actually am proud. And so because I'm proud, I'm not willing to admit my own pride. It becomes this feedback loop, and we just become blind to it. And so pride is extraordinarily destructive for us. Now, what's the opposite of pride? Humility. Humility is the opposite of pride. And the Apostle Paul, this is what he had to say in Philippians chapter 2. He would say that humility is something that should define someone who follows after Christ. He says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, everyone say humility. humility. Value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but, to, but each of you to the interests 
of others. That's what should be true about people who say they follow after Christ. Is it true about me? Is it true about you? James, the brother of Jesus, which is a fascinating thought and it's on its own. What would it take for you to believe your brother was the son of God? James was a leader in the early church, mostly to Jewish Christians in certain cities. He wrote a book, and it's full of wisdom. And in this book, James gives us a principle. He gives us a couple principles, and it's some of these principles that if we that if we could just understand this, if we could internalize, it is the most life-changing principle in the world for us. And James gives us a couple of these principles, and we're just going to walk through them here this weekend. And it's going to be maybe a bit offensive to us, and it might cause you to push back at it a little bit. But if we could just, wherever we're at and whatever kind of relationships we're in, if we would embrace this principle that James gives to us, it will do more to help pride from destroying our relationships and from being the boss of us than anything else. And that's, that's a promise. So let's look at that together in James chapter 3. By the way, if you don't have a Bible, we've got a stack of them at the black table at the back. You can have it. It's our gift for you. James chapter 3, verse 13 is where we'll start. And, and James asks us two questions that we're going to look at this weekend. He says this. He says, who is wise and understanding amongst you? Who is wise? What is, what is a wise person? A wisdom is someone that has insight. Wisdom is someone that is skilled at living. Wisdom is someone who understands how the world works. Wisdom is someone who understands that life is connected. Think about this. If someone's wise, they know that what they did yesterday affects them today What they're doing today is going to affect them tomorrow. How I choose to eat affects how I'm going to sleep. What I do in my alone time is is going to affect everything else in my life because a foolish person says, it doesn't matter how late I stay up. I'm going to be able to perform just fine at school tomorrow. A wise person says, I know that these things are connected. I know that there's connectivity in life. A wise person is someone who recognized that the world has consequences, that what I do has consequences. Life is connected. And James would say this. He would say, if you think you're wise, if you think you're insightful, he says, if you're a person who knows how to keep things in perspective, he says this. He says, let them show it by their good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. What is the fruit of wisdom? What is the effect of someone who knows that life is connected? It's someone who operates with humility. Now, we tend to think of wisdom primarily about being like making decisions. Should I choose to work here? Should I choose to work there? Do I marry this person? Do I marry that person? God, give me wisdom because I have a decision to make, binary decisions. Do I do this? Don't I do this? But according to what James says, he says that wisdom shows up in how a person interacts with other people in their lives. Are they humble? Not just do they make good decisions. Are they humble? Because he would say this, he would say arrogance in the person who is proud in their heart, it doesn't make any sense. It's irrational. 
Arrogance flies in the face of everything we know about how people work and how the world works. He says, if you're wise, I want to see wisdom in how you live your life. And it's going to be demonstrated in humility because wisdom will always lead to humility. Wisdom is understanding how the world works. That's why the wiser you are, the more humble you're going to be. In fact, humility is so powerful because it's so unnatural in our world. He goes on, verse 14, but if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, if you harbor it, in other words, if you let it linger, if you let it come and dock in your heart, if you let it stay the night in your heart, if you, if you allow things that fly in the face of reality, bitter envy, selfish ambition, it's about me, it's my pride, then you don't understand how the world really works. Because envy, what is envy? Envy is, is life's not fair. Now, fairness ended in the Garden of Eden. Life is not fair. We tell our kids that all the time. If you're an adult, you know in life it's not always going to be fair. He says, someone who is wise does not boast about it or deny the truth. If you let harbor, if you harbor bitter envy, let it linger inside of you. It's all about you. You make the world all about yourself. That's not how the world works, does it? It's not. We know that. We know that to be true everywhere else. It doesn't make any sense. He says, if you... If you're stuck in that space and you make your relationships all about you, you make it all about your perspective, what you want to see have uh, take place, when you do that, you're denying the truth. And people that are wise, they don't deny the truth. They live in the light of what was really happening. He tells us this thing that we already know. He says that when, when, you, when you find this kind of stuff, docking in your heart. Whenever you see someone deceived into thinking it's about them, they're, they're lacking humility. He says that that's where you find envy and selfish ambition, this idea of, of pride. And then he goes on, he goes on. He says, such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but it's earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where you have envy, selfish ambition, you find disorder in every evil practice. He has this fancy way of saying this, hey, what's inside of you starts to come out of you. This, this view of yourself, this self-worship starts to come out of you, and it's going to come out and affect those people in relationships that you're in relationship with. He says, where you have arrogance, this lack of understanding, you're not, you're not recognizing how dependent you actually are on the people around you. You're saying, I don't need to follow your way. It's going to be my way. You're not recognizing that you're connected with other people. And when we lose sight of that, when we get arrogant, he says all kinds of evil practices flow from that. Because the person who deceives themselves can justify just about anything, can't they? Because they're blind and they don't see it. James contrasts that. He contrasts those people who they think it's wise. And don't we, when we're in those moments, don't we think when like, man, I got this figured out. Your, your emotions out are a level 10 and I'm going to demand on my own way. We think we got it figured out. We think we're wise. 
But he says there's a heavenly wisdom, and it looks different than that. It's a, a humbleness. He says the wisdom that comes from heaven, in other words, not this sinful wisdom, because when I'm in the middle of an argument, I'm convinced I'm right. He says that kind of wisdom is pure. It's peace-loving. It's considerate. It's submissive. That is a four-letter word in our culture, isn't it? Submissive. You, you want me to submit to someone else? If that's a hard word for us, consider substituting it with the word adapt. That we would be considerate, that we would adapt to the needs of someone else. Because someone who recognizes that if, if we always enter a situation and everyone's clamoring for something to, for it to be their way, if everyone wants that, it's chaos. That's not wisdom at all. A wise person says, there's actually a lot more constructiveness happening if we can put our own rights aside and adapt to the needs of someone else. Pride says this. Pride says, it's my right. It's my body. I'm entitled to this. I'm in charge. I am woman. I am man. Hear me roar. Someone who is submissive would say, I'm going to set my rights aside for the sake of someone else. Paul in Philippians said that that is the characteristic of someone who is a Christ follower. Not, not the flags that we wave, not what we post, but being the kind of people that would say, I'm going to let my needs and my rights be lesser than my obligations to someone else. I'm going to submit to them. I'm going to go at your pace. I'm going to, even if I'm going to be uncomfortable, I'm going to adapt because I recognize that it's not all about me and that I actually need other people. He says this, the wisdom that comes from heaven is full of mercy, good fruit, impartial, sincere, peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. And then James kind of pauses and he gets to his point. And this is one of those principles that if we can, if we can unlock this, if we can incorporate this into this world, into our, into our world, it makes such a difference on how pride affects our relationships. He launches into a, a second question. He says this, what causes fights and quarrels amongst you? What causes quarrels and fights amongst you? What a fascinating question. He's asking this, what's the root cause of the conflicts in our relationships? And right about then we would say, James, no, no, no you got the, the question wrong. See, the question is not what, the question is who, and I know the who is the problem in my relationships. Because the who, it's my mom. She won't mind her own business. She keeps telling me how to parent my kids. The who is my boss. My boss is cold and uncaring, and he doesn't have any idea how those decisions affect my project. The who, the who is my kid, my ninth grade son, who, who thinks he rules the world and has everything figured out, and, and I can never do anything right. Why is that the one that's leading our family right now? That's the who. I, the, the who is, is my friend who, who won't wear a mask or is super vaccinated and wants everyone. And the, the problem is this other person over here. The problem is not the what. The problem is the who. And James would say, that's why we're talking about this. 
Because until you get a handle on the fact that it's not a who, but it's a what that's really going on, you'll never get to the root of what's actually happening. He says this, who is wise and understanding amongst you, what causes quarrels and fights amongst you? He says, don't they come from your desires that battle within you? Not the who, but the what. To which we would say, no, they don't come from within me. They come from outside of me. Have you ever met my boss? Because then you would understand. You would understand the source of my quarrels. Have you ever met my husband? He used to be such a gentleman, but now he was a catch before, but now he's just rude and arrogant, and he always makes me give up the things that I actually want to do. The source of the quarrels and the fights amongst you James would say, it's not the who, it's the what. It's coming from what's inside of you. They don't come from his or her inability to see things the way that you see them, even though that's the way we often see it. You know, if they could just understand the world as I see it, which you know is always the right way, there's no other opinion there that really matters. If they could just see things my way, we wouldn't fight and quarrel. If only they knew what I went through. If only they knew what I knew, then we would have peace. James says, if you think that the, the root of your quarrel and fight is a who and not a what, you're not understanding the root cause. You're not understanding the source, and you're never going to deal with it, and it's actually going to feed something really ugly and dangerous inside your own heart. Now, let me just pause and say that what James is telling us here is so life-changing. It's so, it's so relationship-changing, and that's not hyperbole. It's relationship-healing. If people that are in a fight and a quarrel can pause for just a moment and start to recognize that there's something happening inside of them rather than outside of them, it does so much to change the, tra the trajectory of a fight and a quarrel. It changes everything. So let me ask that question again. Don't they come from the desires that battle within you? And the answer is yes. Yes, they do. And James says the reason that we fight and that we quarrel is because there's something that we want and we're not getting it. I want respect and they're not giving it to me. I, I just want them to come home at a reasonable hour. We've talked about it before and they didn't do what we had talked about. I just want her to answer her phone when she's out with her friends, and we've talked about it before, and she won't answer her phone. I just want them to give me some space. I've asked for them, and they're not giving me that kind of space. I just want credit for my ideas. I'm upset, and I'm frustrated, and if you asked any of my friends, they would say, yeah, you know what? You're in the right here. The root of it is not out there. The root of it is in here because I'm not getting what I want and we would hear that, and I know how you're going to respond because I respond the same way. But I earned it. Right, you, you earned it, and you feel like you should get it, right? Yes. So you're not getting what you want, right? Yeah, but, but, but they promised, and they didn't keep their promise. So you want them to keep their promise, right? Yes, and they didn't keep their promise. No, they didn't, so... You didn't get what you wanted. But it's not even just. What happened wasn't even fair. So 
you want something to be just, and you think it should be fair, right? And you didn't get that, did you? No, you didn't. So you didn't get what you wanted. Now, I'm just telling you that if we can press pause for a moment in our conflicts, when the frustration, when the anger, when the discord, when those conflicts start happening, if we can pause to recognize that part of the problem is, you know what part, maybe not all of the problem, but you know what part of the problem is? Part of the problem is me, and I'm not getting what I want. It changes everything. Parents, this should be so intuitive for us, right? We're driving and the kids are in the back and you put the one hand behind the seat and they're fighting and you like swing the arm. You're like reaching into the second row back there and you're like hitting everything around you, right? And you're like, I don't care who's right. I don't need to be the judge. I'm just going to be the jury. You're both being selfish. Knock it off. I'm taking away Christmas. I do that often. I take away Christmas (laughs) a lot. Like we we see this all the time and, and we see it in our kids, right? I wonder if that's why God said, call me your heavenly father, because there are times where you just feel like kids, and you're not getting it. The root and the source of every single argument that you've had is not out there, it's in here. You want something, and you're not getting it. And I'm telling you, the moment we start to embrace that in our lifestyle, Our pride starts to lose its grip on us, and it won't be a relationship killer. James goes on, and he continues in verse 2 of chapter 4. You desire, but you don't have, so you kill. And we read that, and we're like, James, you got to be kidding me. Man, that's just hyperbole, right? But his point is this. Look, if you don't recognize that the source is in here and not out there, you have the potential to carry things into a very unhealthy and destructive way in your relationships. And as long as you think that it's him and since you can't control him, that, that you're going to think that you have an excuse not to control you. And as long as you think that it's her, it's 100% her, and since I can't control her, then I'm going to give up reasoning when it comes to control me, controlling me because they deserve it. And James would say the very thing that leads to murder is inside of you. And what causes murder when someone wants something and they're not getting it? And it justifies a response to blame the other person. And James would say, hey, heads up, you wise people. That's inside of you. You are deceiving yourself if you think that you don't have what it takes inside of you to take your relationship to an unhealthy and a destructive pattern. He says, be humble enough to recognize, oh my goodness, that's inside of me. I have that in me. He says, you covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and you fight. You can't get from him or her what you want. They're not giving me the freedom. They're not giving me the respect. They're not giving me the allowance. Mom and dad will never let me out. You fill in the blank. We all have our issues. We all have our stuff. But the source is not out there. The source is in here. We're not getting our way. I want to be worshipped the way that I want to be worshipped. Our expectations aren't being met. The source is in here because my pride is being hurt. And so we have these conflicts with other people. 
and we slam up against them, and then all of a sudden this stuff comes out of us, and we're like, where did this come from? It might even seem like a small thing. I can't believe they didn't shut the garage door. I asked them to do it before, and this stuff comes out of me and say, man, it's their fault. They bumped into me, and this conflict is here, and look at this stuff that spewed over. It's all their fault. No, 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 no. It came out because it was inside of you, not because of what they did. So we got to stop to think for a moment, what's causing this? It's not her, and it's not him. It's my desires that aren't being met. It's me that's not being worshipped. It's my expectations that are not being experienced. Now, I don't want you to hear me say something that I'm not saying. Of course there are things that should upset you. There are, of course, being treated unfairly or someone that doesn't keep a promise that it should upset you. But in the middle of that conversation, for a mature person, it dawns on them and they would say this, you know what, part of the problem, maybe not all of the problem, but part of the problem is this. There's something I'm expecting and I'm not getting it and the problem is me. I'm not getting what I want. I'm telling you, if you can own your slice of that argument, the temperature comes down. Pride no longer has a grip on your heart, and it doesn't have to be a relationship killer anymore. So let me ask you a question, and this isn't a James question, it's just a me question. What is your relationship with pride? What is your relationship with pride? Do you see it in yourself when you're in the middle of disagreeing with your mom or your dad or your sister or your spouse or your friend? When you're in the heat of it, do you, are you able to say, you know what, I'm upset because I'm not getting what I want? When you think about your critical relationships, are the problems always out there? Is it always their fault? Is it always outside of yourself? It's his fault. Maybe my, ki my kids, they should just listen to me. Or do you see that at least part of the problem is your pride getting in the way? Let me ask it this way. If I was to ask your roommate, if I was to ask your spouse, if I was to ask your family member, where is the seed of pride in you? What would they say? If we were to ask them, where are those unseen blind spots of pride in your life? What would they say? What is your relationship with pride? And the next time you feel that conflict brewing, are you willing to ask the question, what expectation am I having that's not being met? To recognize that if I'm wise, if I'm wise, I'm going to recognize that the world doesn't revolve around me, that life isn't fair, that I'm dependent on other people, that I need other people. That's understand how the world really works. You know, we have a, we have a Savior, the guy who started out all of this, who had every reason to insist that his way was the way that should be deferred to. Who had every reason to insist on having the seat at the top of the table, to having the best food, and yet he didn't. 
He was the model of what humility looked like. Let's look back at that Philippians passage, what we started with. Paul says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but to the interests of others. Now, this is what he says. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being very nature God. Now, what should God get? Whatever he wants, right? He, he is in charge. He has the right. He says, that who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage. On multiple occasions, Jesus, Jesus never got what he wanted or what he deserved, and he did not come in and get all powered up and say, you know what, I get to sit at that seat on the table even though they came in first. He never did that. Verse 7, rather he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. In being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Paul says, in your relationships, as you relate to one another, have that same mindset, church. Have that same mindset. Jesus humbled himself. How far did he go? How, how far did he humble himself? Paul would say he did that to the point of death, not just a normal death, but the most excruciating death that we can consider. Look, one of the reasons that following Jesus will make you better at life and life better for you is because following Jesus will always nudge you to selflessness and to putting others in front of yourself. And when you do that, life doesn't just get better. Life gets better bigger becomes more about more than just you and your little your little castle becomes about God's kingdom and when we move towards being others centered your life gets bigger and you're able to live a life that's not going to be ruined by the pride relationship killer Here's what I want to ask you to do. We're going to spend a, a couple moments here just reflecting. If we can do this together, I want to ask some questions. Just as the Spirit kind of leads me to this. I've had the privilege of thinking about this for weeks. So I had that conversation with my wife where I started to unpack what were the significant hurts for me that I caused or that I experienced and how did my pride contribute to that? And what I want you to think through this week, you can't catalog every single one, but just think through what are those big things where it blew up, it hit the fan. How did your pride play into that? You didn't get what you wanted. It wasn't fair. They broke their promise. And then I want you to just step into that space where you would confess that to God. And we're going to create some space here for you just to do that with God and, and just confess. Because listen, listen, there ain't a person in this room that has this pride thing figured out. Guaranteed. It's so insidious, so natural. It's, it's hidden in all the pockets of our hearts. So don't think for a moment that you got this figured out. You didn't. You don't. So just ask God, God, would you show me that? Would you reveal that to me? And I think when we start to look back reflectively of what we need to own in the past, it helps us and enables us to start to own things that are going to happen in the future too so that pride doesn't have to be the relationship killer for us. 
So let's close our eyes here for a moment. I'll ask you a few questions. You just do business with God on your own. No one else is listening. God's hearing your thoughts. God's hearing what you're confessing to Him. And I just want to ask, ask you here in this place that if someone wants to say, you know what, I've got some real issues of pride in my heart and in my life. I'm, I'm not going to open my eyes to look. No one else is looking. But here's what I want to ask you to do. I want you to put your hands out, palms raised, the symbol of surrender before God, and just say, God, I'm a proud person. And it's destroyed and it's been the source of all sorts of heartache and pain in my life. I don't want it to be there in the future. Would you say that to him? Later in the passage in James, it says that God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So listen, listen. Do you want God to oppose you? Or can you say, I see my pride. God, I want your grace. I need it. I need it. So God, here's what we pray together. We pray that you would reveal in us those hidden pockets of pride that are tucked away. And sometimes we might evidence them by running away. Other times we might evidence them by chucking the china. Sometimes we might evidence it just by a rebellious, haughty, fist-shaking posture. God, it's foolishness. It's foolishness in my heart. God, I don't want to have a grip anymore. Would you help us to walk in the wisdom that James, James identified here, to walk in humility? We love you, God. We need you for this. We need your grace. Would your kindness lead us to awareness? And would we walk in the light of humility? Christ's name we pray.